with the final quarter of 2023 inching ever closer. What does merger market data tell us about the current state of private equity deal-making in the year to date? What are the market signals around leverage and buyer and seller valuation gaps? And what kinds of deals and strategies are GPs employing to deploy capital in this environment? We'll be discussing all this and more on today's episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome back to the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. My name's Harriet Matthews. I'm funds editor at Merger Market and Unquote, and I'll be your host for today. So the podcast is back after a summer break, and we hope that you've managed to take some time off to rest and relax before we dive into the last quarter of the year too. Over the summer, our private equity reporting team has been continuing to track processes tipped to come to fruition before the end of this year or the start of next. And we want to use this episode to provide some insights about what we can expect to see in the coming months. You'll hear in a moment from Chris Boycott, partner at Linklaters, who I spoke to about his outlook on the market. But before that, I'm pleased to welcome once again my colleague Rachel Lewis, senior private equity reporter, who I'm hoping can help us make sense of the market that we currently find ourselves in. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Harriet, and hi, everyone at home. Yeah, it's back to school season. It does feel like it's been a perpetual August for about the past 18 months, but let's see if we find some reprieve in the the coming months. Yes, let's hope so. Now, to set the scene, at the time of recording, our preliminary data from Merger Market shows that in 2023, for the year to date, EMEA-targeted sponsor activity is standing, this is in terms of volume, at 58.1 billion euros. Now, that's not a full picture just yet, of course. We are only a few, you know, we've got a few months left of the year, but in the full year for 2022, that full year figure was 216 billion euros. So that would be quite a feat to, to catch up if we if we do. And, it, you know, we're currently seeing a, a volume that's at 37% of that previous full year figure. Looking at the first half of this year again, that stood at 43 billion euros in terms of volume. And the last time we saw a figure lower than 43 billion for the first half of a year in terms of sponsor M&A activity was 2014. But on the positive side, year-to-date deal count puts this year almost on par with 2019 with 581 sponsor back deals this year versus 632 with around four months left to go. And we'll touch on this a little bit later in the episode, I think. But I wanted to highlight the fact that there's a pretty significant gap in large cap deals of 1 billion euros plus, to no one's surprise, I think. 19 of those have got over the line so far this year, amounting to 38 billion euros worth of deal volume so far. And just to put this in context, from 2018 to 2022, we've seen an average of 42 such deals completed each year. So again, for some obvious reasons, I suppose this year is is lagging a little bit. So Rachel, over to you now. What should we make of all that? And and what are your sources saying about what market sentiment's like at the moment? Thanks, Harry. And I think we should just really take a second to reflect on just how staggering those numbers are. Um, 58 billion euros worth of deal volume so far this year, compared to 216 billion for the whole of last year. And I think we need to really need to remember that the slowdown actually started kind of 
Q3, Q4 last year. So that was a number which was already down. And now we're even further down than that. And um, in terms of, of what we have to expect for the coming months, you know, I think publicly people are optimistic. But when I speak to people on the ground, they're still extremely cautious. And I think, you know, we, we've had a whole bunch of, of pipeline assets which are starting to stack up and expecting a post-summer launch, mid-cap and large-cap. But, you know, when I speak to people about the work that they're doing and what they're expecting to come to market, people aren't really putting in the prep work now, which will see a full recovery of markets, even come Q1 next year, just in terms of the due diligence being done on processes, the numbers of sponsors that started to think about exits. So I really think, you know, we might see that that number of deals continue, particularly in the mid-market space. Um, but in terms of, you know, deal value, I really, really don't think that we'll see a recovery perhaps in, until late next year. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, just, you know, people are really adjusting to a new environment. And if we were to make comparisons between now and 2008 or 2009, you know, there are many more options for sponsors to keep holding on to assets a bit longer. We've talked on this podcast before about the perception of GP-led secondaries changing. That's an obvious one. But I, it does seem like people are, are prepared to kind of wait and see where they where they need to. And I'm wondering as well, sort of, again, just looking ahead, do you want to highlight, Rachel, a few processes that we have been tracking? What what could be coming to market sort of end of this year and, and start of next? Yeah, absolutely. But, but before I go into that, I, I did want to just highlight kind of one perhaps ray of light, um, which particularly in the mega deal space, so kind of multi-billion deals might see Europe finally start to to take a turn. Um, so typically, people see the Euro market, the Europe market. You'll all know this kind of about four to six months behind the US. And what's interested in the US market is at the past couple of weeks, on the leverage side, we've seen a couple of syndicated deals. Um, so Subway, which was acquired by Roark Capital for about nine billion dollars, that's been syndicated by around about seven banks. Um, World Pay, which is a corporate carve out um, worth about $18.5 billion, that was syndicated with a similar number of banks. So we all know it's been kind of the debt markets, which have largely been holding up this kind of deal making environment. If we're seeing some syndication in the US, we might start to see that in um, Europe soon. But yeah, just in terms of what, what we're all tracking, all of the reporters at Merger Market on the ground is expected to launch post summer. Um, so there's ICE, the chemicals group, which is owned by Adven. Um, that'll be a multi, multi-billion deal. Partner in Pet Food, the pet food group, which is owned by Sinvern. Um, they've reported to have hired advisors for a deal probably worth around 2 billion euros. Public sector software group Civica, which is owned by Partners Group. Um, they're gearing up for a post-summer exit, again, worth about 2 billion pounds. Um, and then... Um, you mentioned kind of creative ways to do exits. I think another big one which people are waiting for is Busy Bees, which is the the chain of UK nurseries owned by OTPP. Um, and interestingly, that is now gearing towards a minority stake. It's one that people have been waiting for a while. And that will be at kind of a 2.5 to £3 billion valuation um, as regards reports. So, you know, I don't think we'll see kind of the, the multi, multi, multi-billion 
mega deals. But in terms of those like few billion, hopefully this is kind of the the starting point. And um, I also just wanted to flag before we listen to the interview that kind of where we've seen syndication start recently in the US. So I think where in Europe they're kind of bridging that gap is with LP co-investment. So well-documented that EQT's done a $5.6 billion take private of DECRA, the veterinary pharmaceuticals group. Um, but what's interesting is that ADIA, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, according to the, the financial reports and the documents around that base, owns around 26% of the BIDCO via, via a locally held subsidiary. So um, US at the moment coming in heavily with a syndication, Europe is kind of working really hard on large ticket from very public LPs to kind of bridge that lack of financing. And I think in the deals that I just mentioned, we might need some heavy LP involvement to kind of get those over the line too. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out in the coming months. And as you've said, the the question around financing is is very much there. It's kind of the question. So yeah, thank you for highlighting those examples, Rachel. Some really interesting observations there and some names I think that will be familiar to our listeners as well in terms of deals that they're tracking. So we'll listen now to our interview with Chris Boycott, partner at Linklaters, and Rachel and I will be back afterwards to discuss a few of the key takeaways. Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me. Well, thank you very much for having me. No problem at all. I think we'll we'll dive in, first of all, to one of the questions that I think is really at the forefront of a lot of private equity practitioners' minds, be they GPs and LPs themselves or related industry advisors. And it's all around just when a kind of uptick in activity or recovery in activity is likely to come. There was a lot of talk earlier this year about the second half of 2023 being a point at which we could see an M&A recovery for private equity. And naturally, GPs tend to be fairly optimistic around this kind of outlook as they need to put investors' capital to work. They need to have confidence in their own strategies. But what do you think, Chris? Do you think we're going to see this you know, we're already into the second half of this year, I suppose, but how how likely are those 2023 predictions looking now or are hopes going to be more pinned on the start of 2024? I'm also, I think, at the optimistic end of the spectrum. I think when, you know, whether a lot of deals actually come through in Q4 or whether some of them fall into Q1 of next year, you know, that's, that's a good question. I'm not sure anybody really knows, but we're certainly seeing lots of appetite to transact uh, lots of interest in in new opportunities um you know both in the public sphere and the private sphere so i, I think you know i'm definitely optimistic that we will see a return to i guess a normal level of of activity i don't think to the levels of activity we saw in 21 or 22 just yet but those are obviously outliers in um, you know, over the last 10 years. Of course, because I suppose there was quite a lot of uh, pent-up demand, particularly in 2021. We didn't really get a typical summer break, I think, in terms of kind of deal announcements and, and work, whereas it feels a little bit more like we perhaps have done this year, at least from my side. I don't know if if you'd if you'd agree. Did any of that 
kind of pent up demand in the market come through over the summer? Or do you think, again, it's really about sort of the next few months we're going to see things come through? I mean, we, I mean we've, we've seen a steady amount of volume throughout the year so far, to be honest. As you've pointed out, there is, you know, value is down um, significantly on the last two years. But I think there is, there is certainly a, a reasonable amount of volume around the market. And um, it just happens to be at the smaller end of the market, particularly in the mid-market, where financing is easier um, and... Um, you know, obviously, people are also focused on platform deals, you know, add-ons, buy and build type strategies. So we've seen a lot of that in the first half of the year, and we expect that to continue um, when we might return to the days of lots and lots of large cap deals. I think you know that's that's maybe going to be a slower acceleration um, than uh, than in the mid market. Yes, because in that universe, that large cap universe in particular, it seems like that's where the buyer and seller valuation gaps are really kind of hitting the hardest and are most commonly cited as an obstacle for deals getting done. But at the same time, lower valuations are obviously meant to be one of the drivers for good fund vintages at this point in the cycle. Are we at that point in the cycle yet, would you say? Are you seeing signs this gap is closing for any particular sectors or types of businesses? I think the gap is closing. I think there is an acknowledgement there will not be a quick return to a low interest rate, low inflation environment. Um, you know, It has proved to be a, 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 a more you know, medium term issue rather than the transient problem that people originally forecast. And so I think everybody, well, I say everybody, um, I think there is a sort of general consensus that that the market conditions as they are today um, are going to be with us for a little while. And so people need to work out how to transact in that environment. Uh, as you say, doing that in, in the large cap context is probably the most challenging because you at least historically, have needed to raise the largest amount of debt, and um, you know, it obviously, takes a huge amount of conviction to do deals at that sort of scale. Um, I think, I think we will, we will see more and more of those deals. I think ultimately, you know, financial sponsors exist to, um, you know, uh, to, to do M and A. Um, and so there is still a large amount of um, dry powder out there. There's, a, you know, there are still lots and lots of exciting opportunities. Um, and I think we've seen a period of relatively less volatility. And I think people starting to see um, maybe the sort of end of the increase in inflation. Um, I think all of that sort of points towards people feeling a bit more confident around being risk on. Um, and so hopefully that will flow through into a few more large deals in Q4 or in Q1. Yes. And you've mentioned inflation is obviously something people are keeping an eye on or seeing as a, a signal around stability. I was wondering if there are any other indicators or any other markets or s signals that you would say European sponsors in particular are looking at to kind of gauge when some of this activity could come back? Are they looking across the pond to the US or, or to other areas? 
I mean, I think the, the US is incredibly influential, obviously, in from a sort of macroeconomic perspective. And we've seen things like um, the focus on energy transition and the stimulus in the US, you know, pushing a huge amount of investment towards sectors like energy transition. Um, I expect that to continue. Um, it's obviously a hot topic for governments all over the world. Um, I mean, the other sectors where we are seeing outsized interest, one one is in infrastructure more generally. Um, I think partly that's a response to some of the volatility that we've seen in the last 18 months and people looking for more robust, stable cash generative assets. Um, and then sort of on the other end of the spectrum, I think we've seen actually a lot of interest in technology businesses, particularly those that were probably punished most severely in a value in evaluation sense by the increase in interest rates but that actually has I think, created um, opportunities for people to invest in those assets at, at attractive prices um, I, I also think that leaving aside particular sectors I think sponsors have you know become increasingly sophisticated in looking at different types of transactions so you know the days of Pass the parcel of assets, you know, in sort of secondary and tertiary buyouts. You know, we we obviously do still see plenty of that, but I think sponsors get ever more creative at sourcing new opportunities, whether it's carve outs, you know, public to privates. Um, the sort of platform deal seems to be a very popular um, topic at the moment. So you know, people buying buying a particular business to use as a foothold to then. To then build through strategic M and A, um, and actually in a lot of those assets, surviving a number of different fund vintages, you know, with being you know passed from a sponsor to um, either a continuation fund or or some other fund to fund type transaction. So in effect, to give people more time to build those businesses to a to a scale at which they you know they can genuinely. Um, realize outsized value i see so anywhere where a sponsor yeah as you say can can realize outsized value can kind of put in the the operational work should we be perhaps looking at those kinds of business models essentially rather than looking for recovery in particular sectors i think so and it i suppose it's the nature of the sponsor universe that there will always be opportunities in i guess both the the relative winners in a particular sector, but also actually, you know, a, a different universe of sponsors looking for opportunities in those businesses that are that have really struggled in the last twelve or eighteen months. You know, the the funds that focus on, you know, distressed or special situations have been incredibly active in the last twelve months. You know, there's some very well publicised challenge around businesses that are exposed to the high street um, in the UK in particular. Um, and so, you know, what what might be a challenged asset for one sponsor might be a great opportunity for a new incoming sponsor. Um, so I suppose that's um, that's another area that we we definitely see a lot of interest in. See, very interesting. And everything we're talking about, obviously, is is taking place with this backdrop of how challenging the fundraising market is. Obviously, we've had some massive multi-billion closes, including from the likes of CVC. 
earlier in the year, of course, we had people like Pomera and TA Associates in the European market, or at least, you know, those with, with Europe-focused uh, pools of, of capital. But would you say this environment is also affecting private equity appetite as well as the, the macro picture or are our sponsors, in your experience, just looking for different ways to, to structure deals and just kind of getting on with, with this and raising the capital they, they need to kind of at whatever pace they can? I think it is having an impact on on people's behavior in, in the sort of downstream transactions. I think if, if you can re- realize an exit at an attractive value today, then that's definitely a big positive from a fundraising perspective. And so I think people who are able to demonstrate you know that they're they're able to execute you know a successful exit in this environment um you know i think are keen to do so but i think we're we're seeing often those those things happening in a in a, either a bilateral or a sort of soft process setting rather than people running the risk of having a process that doesn't result in a uh, in a satisfactory resolution and that asset being in some way tarnished by the failed process brush um so i think when it comes to people positioning themselves for their next fundraise you know looking at the portfolio and thinking actually what can we what can we exit now at a good value that will demonstrate a really strong track record that's that's really important but i think ultimately if it's a choice between realizing an asset uh, an unattractive value or waiting i think at the moment we tend to see people would rather wait and we think ultimately the the lps in that fund would rather that they wait um rather than rush through an exit and leave some uh, leave some value on the table i see so it's coming back again to those buyer seller price expectations really and I think in in the fundraising market generally, I think you know we hear a lot that LPs are keen to focus their efforts on maybe a smaller number of GPs than than they might have worked with previously. And I think we are we're definitely seeing a bit of a divergence between you know the the sponsors with with real you know strong track records um, and strong LP relationships. You know those being the relative winners out of the the GP marketplace. And that feels like something that will, you know, that will continue. It does sound like sponsors are accepting that they are going to have to act slightly differently to generate the returns they want to now, essentially more operational improvement. Um, it, you know, multiple arbitrage can no, ne- no longer necessarily be relied on in, in the same way it might have been once. And I, I wonder if you're seeing any signs that GPs are accepting alongside this operational improvement that actually they may just make lower returns on some of their investments that they're going to be realizing in this market. Or do you really think that they are just just holding on? Because there's quite a lot of contradictions going on at the moment, I think, and it's quite difficult to sort of make your, your way through it, it seems. Yeah, I think there is a, a recognition that it is a much more challenging environment to make good returns in today than it maybe was seven or eight years ago. I think, you know, if there were lots of businesses that were bought 10 years ago that if you did nothing and sat still for five years, you'd have still made a good return. And that that clearly is not 
the environment that exists or at least has existed in the last 18 months. That said, I still think with the right um, sort of creative approaches and and the right origination, there are still great opportunities out there for sponsors. Um, but it really comes back to that, you know, quality of relationships with founders and management teams, you know, quality of market connections, and then, you know, speed of execution and um, and that sort of quality of transaction delivery that, you know, that makes sure that when, when the right opportunity comes along that you are, you know, at the very fun, front of the queue um, and that you don't find yourself in a competitive process. Um, so I, I'm not sure that, well, no, nobody has said to me that they're willing, that they're targeting lower returns. Um, it's just that I think there is definitely a more of a focus on, on being selective, looking for, you know, your particular angle in a, in a, in a space or with an asset. Um, and then actually probably spending more time with the asset, whether it's, you know, operational improvement, whether it's strategic M&A or some other, um, you know, capital investment to to take that business, you know, to a place where otherwise that wouldn't have got to. Interesting. I suppose time will tell whether all of this is is successful, of course. And just to bring things back lastly, kind of to the nearer term and, and to the question I asked you at the, the start of our, our conversation today, if we were to kind of sum up your your outlook for the next few months and and into next year, it sounds like obviously there's appetite there, as you've said, a lot of preparation has been put in to potentially bring processes where sponsors have high conviction to the market. Are you broadly optimistic for, for the next few months and how, you know, Q1 and even the second quarter of 2024 will play out, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm definitely optimistic for um well both for the second half of this year and also for for 2024 i think i think we'll see an acceleration in in volume in the second half of the year with you know some some increase in value and let's you know let's see just how how much the large cap market returns i, I think there will still be some pretty large deals in in the remainder of this year and then I think from 2024 onwards, I, yeah, I definitely feel very optimistic that we will see um, not a return to the levels of, of 2021 or 2022, but I think still a strong pipeline of, of deals, not just in the mid-market, but also at the upper end of the market. Excellent. Good to end on a positive note then. Thank you very much, Chris, for taking the time to speak to me. It's been great to have you on the podcast. Not at all. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Chris, for taking the time to speak to me. Now, Rachel, it's clear that a lot of challenges remain, but Chris did seem fairly optimistic about the prospects for the next few months. In terms of deployment, it seems like where there's a will, there's a way, but the way certainly isn't going to be easy. So what kind of, what did you make of the conversation? What stood out to you? I think the point around um, the buyer-seller price expectation gap is really pertinent at the moment. It's not been a surprise just by the number of processes we've seen in that have stalled or fallen over on that issue. But what I think the past few 
weeks or months have shown is that vendors are actually starting to come to terms with this gap a little bit. So I just wanted to share some of the work I've been doing internally on entry multiples. So what we're quite often seeing is that the the vendors pitching at a certain multiple and then you know down the line where it ends up getting done there's around about 20 to 30% valuation discount and it's super interesting that this is kind of quite actually consistent across the board there are still some deals being done um particularly in the tech space where they are being completed at the the multiple that the vendor wanted but where that isn't happening yeah it's roughly around 20 to 30% um and that really shows i think that that um, sponsors are starting to grapple with this and realizing that perhaps in some instances it is better to get those deals done rather than sit on them. But then again, you know, the number of deals, like I said, which have stored or fallen over just shows that, okay, maybe sponsors are willing to kind of hold out a little bit more, either sit on it and wait for market conditions to improve or kind of go back into that growth journey the buy and build, the organic growth, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, because that's kind of something I did put put to Chris, just speaking about the fact that these lower valuations are expected to feed good fund vintages. And that's easy to come to terms with if you're the buyer. But certainly, yes, I, I think we're, we're seeing mixed signals around sellers, but super interesting that we're already observing some slight climb downs, perhaps. And, and we'll obviously be sure to keep you all updated listeners in our reporting on, on what we're seeing there. I think another theme it's worth uh, bringing out again, and this is something, Rachel, that you picked up on from IPEM back in June, is just kind of, you know, value creation, particularly buy and build. That seems to still be a really big theme and something that sponsors feel they can do well to build value and kind of justify investment cases. Yeah, 100%. Again, buy and build has been a big theme going on for, for the past 18 months or so. Um, this new concept, well, it's not new, but um, newly invigorated concept, shall we say, of reaching alpha. I find it quite funny because um, alpha is a benchmark and naturally not everyone will be able to reach it. But buy and build is one way to do that. Although again, to come back to, to debt markets, it's interesting because I think the buy and build story is strong where the acquisition facilities are already in place. Where we're seeing companies have to kind of new platforms, obviously that debt is still expensive. Um, And so that again kind of creates issues or not issues, but questions of kind of five, six years. Now kind of that's becoming, again, the, the standard holding period. You know, what will that return look like if the acquisition facilities have been expensive, even if they've been able to acquire those add-ons at a lower price um, because naturally of the state of the market. And I think, you know, a lot of a lot of platform add-ons naturally are founder-owned. And even through COVID, through kind of every deal making up and down, a lot of founders have an idea in their head of what their business is worth and are kind of less attuned to the market environment. So perhaps, you know, those are actually still being sold. And completed at a relatively high multiple. 
Yeah, really interesting. We, we've spoken to a, a few GPs around that concept. Uh, we spoke to them in the most recent European private equity trend spotter, for example, because obviously, yes, a lot of them do expect more founder-led or founder-backed deal flow in this environment. But at the same time, those those price expectations, as you say, won't necessarily come down. And I think all of this kind of points to an ultimate question that we are spending a lot of time thinking about, and I'm sure GPs are as well, just around returns. Because Chris said, you know, nobody is targeting lower returns. And, you know, I suppose that's probably true. People aren't targeting them. But I think this this does point to a wider question of of who is going to do well out of this environment and what kind of businesses are going to do well as well. And I'm not sure we have an answer yet. There are some hints around certain types of businesses being particularly appealing, businesses focused on data, for example, anything that is sort of seen as as resilient. Um, But, you know, I I think we we don't quite have, have an answer yet, right? Yeah, I think so. Like Chris said, there's still a lot of interest in tech and infra. Um, I'd also just t- like to highlight, obviously, healthcare, industrials, particularly tick-adjacent businesses, they still remain hot. But I think more than the the sector, um, a lot of private equity are looking at where they can go in at a lower price and drive that value, um, which is, again, where we come back to take privates, where we come back to corporate carve-outs and kind of situations where there is a real opportunity um, to go in kind of, um, you know, there is there has there either isn't a sponsor in the business or there hasn't been for a while kind of going back much more to primary buyouts so there's a chance to go back into that real era of value creation whether that be like we just talked about with a buy and build or an, an, an more organic model um as regards returns i mean obviously we're going to see a, a difference in irr i presume if those holding periods become longer so um It'll be interesting to see what what LPs make of that. Money multiples will remain as important as ever, I'm sure. And as always, LPs will be looking at how much capital is actually distributed to them um, as a kind of metric as well. Absolutely. And we, we briefly touched on fundraising in the conversation with Chris. And while we don't have time to get into the, the full picture there, clearly this is the the background to to everything we're we're talking about today people need to be able to raise the capital that they feel is you know appropriate for their for their needs to do deals and it does seem like a lot of those difficulties aren't going to work themselves out until next year although there is some optimism on so, around some GPs saying that they are coming to market in 2024 because they feel it will be less crowded less difficult and it might be but the, the LP liquidity constraints aren't going to sort themselves out in a matter of months, really. So that's another thing we'll be keeping an eye on, I think. Yeah, and talking about how much dry powder there is, but, you know, we haven't seen many people, many sponsors at all, been running hard and fast in this market to deploy. I think there is still an underlying assumption that you have to be cautious and risk off. And I don't see that changing in the next Q1. I think gone are the days where people are playing ridiculous multiples just in order to deploy in very um, competitive auctions. I, I really think that, yes, there's a lot of dry powder, 
but it has been deployed cautiously and that will continue, I think, for a long, long time to come. Absolutely. And, you know, we may well be sitting here chatting about how how that's turned out, um, you know, come December this year and come the end of Q1 next year. And um, as always, we'll be sure to keep you in the loop, listener, on everything that we're, we're seeing. And I think for now, uh, we'll wrap up the podcast there. But thank you again to Chris for taking the time to speak to me. And thanks, Rachel, as well, for joining me. It's been great to have your insights. Thanks very much, Harriet. And thank you, listener, of course, for tuning in. If you like the podcast, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you again in the next episode.